Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. So full disclosure, um, I'd been debating whether or not to actually do an election-specific episode. Uh, And I'd stayed on the fence until this past week where viewers far and wide got to witness, uh, as my friend Gary uh, liked to call it, the dumpster fire that was the first presidential debate between President Trump and former Vice President Biden. To say that we learned close to nothing about the policy positions of the two campaigns would certainly be an understatement. So decision made, and here we are. Uh, Today, we're going to be taking a look at some scenarios regarding overall election outcomes rather than focus on one candidate's individual success and really spend some time discussing on what the impact of a divided versus unified government might be, the impact on policy, on regulation, and the broader regulatory environment, and then really dive into what's at stake for investors. Returning to the show to join me in this discussion is Gary Rosier, Managing Director of Oak Street Real Estate Capital. Prior to joining Oak Street, Gary was the Senior Vice President of Institutional Marketing at Aerial Investments. Welcome back, Gary. Thanks for having me, Dara. Appreciate you bringing me on to this spirited discussion uh, of things I love. Uh, it, I mean, it's like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to tease listeners right now, but like, I think it's really, it's going to be a good one. And it's true because you and I had been talking about putting something like this together. And I was just like, I don't know. I don't know if listeners are going to care about what I think about the election. And then, you know, we watched this week and aside from like the, you know, as as a extemporaneous speaker myself, I was just sort of saddened by what I witnessed from just a pure skill standpoint, um, you know, of the two candidates that our country set forth to, uh, you know, lead the free world. But more importantly than that, I think everyone just got really frustrated. It's like, we learned nothing. We know no more about either camp's policy positions or goals or what they want for the country particularly when it comes to policy and regulation than we did before. And that's a shame. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I I think that, you know, if there's any good news, I want to start with the glass half full is is that I think most voters probably had their minds made up before. So uh, I I think there's little loss on that point, but you know, I think what's, what's most frustrating for me, not even the policy, the fact that it's still a question mark on both sides. I I think there was a a moment in time that we had our, our, our two, you know, leaders, you know, those vying for being the president of, of the United States, they could have, you know, put some calm, I, I think, and some civility into what we've seen over the past several months. Uh, not only did they not do that, you know, I, I think they actually ignited it uh, in, in a way that was just reflective of what has been going on. It was just, it's a big missed opportunity from a leadership perspective that, you know, really frustrated me. Uh, I thought that was a great moment for both of them to be able to do that, and they both failed miserably. Uh, and that's pretty frustrating. So, I think just for the, the general public, I, I feel bad uh, for that. Um, yeah. If you were coming into the debate looking for answers, you certainly did not get them. 
Um, no, um, we, we, hope, we hoped them. for calm. We got more chaos. And honestly, even since then, like the chaos hasn't stopped, right? Like it's just a complete roller coaster. So I think about literally like what the 10 to 14 day time period, uh, where you and I started talking about this and there've been some, what we would call developments, right? So in a litigator's world, when you have something really good to tell a client, it's good news or a win. But when you have something less than good to tell them, we say there's been a development. So there's been a development. And the most recent, I think, is the news that we woke up to this morning about President Trump and the First Lady uh, having officially been diagnosed with coronavirus. And then, you know, of course, hours before that was our dumpster fire presidential debate, um, which was right on the heels of uh, the passing of Justice Ginsburg. So to say that people's outlooks and positions and predictions two weeks ago are really, really different. Shortest news cycles ever in the history of the world right now. Um, So there's really, there's just so much up in the air. So Gary, I don't know, where do you, where do you want to start? Man, that's a lot. Listen, if you're an author, you should be taking notes right now, because if you wrote this book, you'd be very rich right now uh, with all these just changes and monkey wrenches and, you know, in the play, holy moly, there's just a lot there. You know, I would say first and foremost, uh, which is very important is that, you know, we wish obviously, you know, health to the president and the first lady and, you know, all those others affected. And, and you mentioned Justice Ginsburg, um, you know, very sorry for her passing. Uh, it doesn't matter to me where you sit on, on, on the side of the political aisle. You know, you think of a person that was such a trailblazer um, like that, you know, you just got to respect the life and the work. And I certainly do. Um, and even though, you know, we, we could fall on different sides of, of the aisle in terms of how she you know, saw cases and such. I thought she was brilliant. Uh, I thought that she was an incredible writer. I thought that she did so much for uh, the women's movement, you know, which has made us all better. So, you know, we lost a Titan and, and that's, that's pretty sad. And, you know, hopefully that whoever replaces her is able to be, you know, as forthcoming and as strong in that position. Uh, the country certainly needs it. Well said. As I was thinking about how we were going to frame today's episode, um, I came across a study put together by Morgan Stanley's U.S. public policy research team that I actually thought did a really nice job of sort of framing the issues that we wanted to talk about in a really organized way. More importantly, they had some really interesting takeaways that I'd sort of like to focus on, get your reaction to, and then we can talk about, you know, uh, expand on those a little bit. COVID and the uncertainty that that provided to the economy have already added very, very new dimensions to what's already been a landmark election cycle, completely unprecedented. I hope we don't see anything like it ever again. Uh, But what are basically the key takeaways from markets and investors. Um, Morgan Stanley's research team had some opinions on what those were. But I think what I'd like to do is, as I said at the beginning, focus on overall election outcomes rather than who happens to be our next president. And we could certainly talk separately about, you know, what election results will mean and whether or not there'll be a peaceful transition. But Lord knows we don't have enough time for that. And uh, it might take us a little bit astray from where we want to go. So let's start with that. Certainly, one of the most interesting takeaways I thought that the Morgan Stanley research team came away with was miscalculating the likelihood of any candidate's policy platform actually becoming successful legislation, given what we've witnessed as the often bumpy road from campaign promises to enacted law. 
So I guess let's start there. Gary, what are your thoughts? You know, I actually would agree with that. There, there's always just this common thread that, you know, if you get a certain president in uh, that's either, you know, an R or a D, certain things always happen or, or vice versa. And, and the reality is, is people forget that the way our Constitution works is um, the executive branch has, you know, extremely limited powers by design. And, and a lot of, you know, regulation, policy, laws, you know, of course, they come from uh, Congress and Senate. And, and in years past, decades past, I would say, we were not this spread apart on viewpoints or the ability to execute. But today, we're actually extremely spread apart on viewpoints, and we're almost at a standstill in the ability for things to actually happen. So uh, I think there's a, a big overreaction to policy on both sides, depending on the scenarios. And I just I feel like it's you've got the Democrats saying certain things, Republicans saying other things, and people just assume that if they're you know, in power, they automatically happen. The reality is that's just not the case. Um, and, and that's never really been the case. And it certainly hasn't been as, as hard as it is nowadays. I think that, you know, there's, there's more gridlock to come. Uh, even if there's a suite, you know, on both sides, particularly on the blue side, just because it's most likely, much more likely than, than on the, uh, on the red side. But e- even then, does I hurt you. Does that, does that, does that hurt you to say? No, I mean, listen, <laughs> it is what it is. I'm, listen, I'm a- <laughs> Financial markets, we react off of what's in front of us, not necessarily what we want. But I think there's an overreaction. I think the market's already thinking about it. I think a lot of this is already priced in. Uh, I think investors are um, positioning themselves now, you know, not necessarily waiting until November, you know, 3rd. So uh, I'm on the fence that there's an overreaction to, you know, what the policy outcomes could be. Well, let's talk about fiscal expansion a little bit. One of the interesting uh, takeaways, I thought, of the Morgan Stanley report is that fiscal expansion was a likely side effect and a plausible policy path, regardless of either color sweep, whether you're talking a blue sweep uh, or a red sweep, um, with one party gaining control of the White House Senate and House of Representatives. Truth is that regardless of which way if a sweep takes place in which way a sweep might take place, the truth of the matter is, is that neither party is going to have more than the slimmest of majorities, really, in either of those situations. And as a result, laws that are real, like the policy and laws that are really going to be able to pass are going to be very much, you know, limited to those favored by that, you know, small consensus and wouldn't it just be a situation where legislative power is just going to accrue to the moderates anyway? <laughs> wow. Um, that's a heck of a question. Uh, probably. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I've gotten pretty good at this over the past yeah, year. <laughs> probably. I mean, this is why I kind of go back to, you know, there's an overreaction here. There, there's little that can actually happen. I, I think fiscal expansion, the way you laid it out, is, is absolutely right. It's going to continue uh, despite who's in the White House, you know, who's in the Senate, who's in Congress. You know, that's been happening since Bush. Um, it, it kills me to say that. I'd like to go back to a place where we're balancing budgets and, you know, not growing uh, the government. But the fact of the matter is where we are in the cycle at this point after the spending that we've had through multiple administrations, you know, you almost have to spend to get out of it at this point. Um, so I just don't see it going back the other way, you know, in any way. I think fiscal expansion is, is almost a certainty at this point, regardless of the election outcomes. I do think, though, that... The voters will, you know, cast their ballots in whichever way they plan to cast their ballots by by mail, in person, uh, what have you. And that will ultimately dictate, I think, the type of spending, though, that that we may see. I think we all do sort of agree that 
you're right. We are going to have to spend our way out of the situation that we're currently in. But how that happens, I think, will very much be decided by the election results. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I think Democrats are going to spend, you know, much more on health care. Um, again, the regulations are going to cost spending in, uh, in, in places like, you know, oil uh, regulation as it pertains to oil and other areas within you know, on the other side, it's going to be, you know, the spending is going to be, you know, possibly more tax cuts. I mean, that's, you know, also a form of spending. Um, and it's going to be that that deregulation. There's a cost to that as well. So, you know, I think both plans, you know, require more spending. Uh, but you're absolutely right. They're going to be in much, you know, different places. Actually, they're going to be in, in far different places than each other. But either way, we should just get comfortable with the fact that, that you know, that fiscal spending is going to continue to grow. Um, again, I don't love it um, as a traditional economic, you know, economist. I just I don't feel it. I think that we should start to work our way back. But I just don't know that we can do that after spending as much as we have for as long as we have. Uh, this may just be the only way out. So you mentioned earlier that you think that the markets are already making predictions and pricing predictions accordingly right now. I think you said in the assumption of a blue wave. No, correct. I mean, I think that's the most likely outcome um, because the next most likely outcome is just more gridlock. So um, that, that means more of the same. And so, you know, I think that if you're going to protect yourself at this point, you know, you'd want to do that in, in anticipation of a blue wave. Um, and again, that would come down to places like big tech. That would come down to places like financial services. Um, that would come down to places like energy. You know, so again, I think all those things are probably starting to be baked in a little bit. Um, if anybody's looking at polls, you know, and, and if you're going to bet on one side, it's, again, it's looking uh, looking more like a blue wave. If, if there is big change, I still think that, you know, if, if anything, it's going to be more gridlock. Um, I just people have to realize it's hard to get a lot of these things through. I mean, even though, you know, presidents and candidates can can have great aspirations and tell great stories, you know, the ability to get that stuff done is really, really hard. And it's actually even hard to get it done, you know, when that same party controls the the, the Senate and uh, the house. It's still hard to get those things done. So um, if, if there's not, you know, consistency across those three branches, it's, um, it's you, really difficult. Do you think that difficulty though? So let's, let's talk about some non-sweep scenarios, right? So a situation where we have what we have now, right? Republican president, Republican Senate, and a democratic house. Um, obviously that's the status quo. And assuming that the status quo keeps keeping on um, is, reasonable. And I think likely results there would be continued emphasis on deregulation, which would obviously benefit a lot of sectors, including the financial services sector, to the dismay of uh, many consumer advocates. Would you see that as, as, a, as a good or bad thing for tech? You know, we're, we're tech on reg, so we're going to talk about tech. Does tech largely, do they, do they want the status, do they want to keep the status quo? Do they like this sort of thin red line? Does this gridlock help them? Yeah, I, I think there's a there's a dichotomy between different areas in tech, particularly big and small. You know, I, I think status quo helps big tech. I mean, big tech has been uh, the driver of growth. You know, the the last several years, uh, they they now occupy a large part of of many of our markets. Uh, again, a lot of our growth has come from that place. So I, I think that's a status quo is a good thing for big tech. I mean, there's still going to be investment. Uh, you know, if if corporate rates stay low, you know, regulation stays low. Uh, that obviously is a plus to their earnings, you know, which is a plus to their stocks, which is, you know, tends to be a plus for more people making investment. Um, I think more regulation helps the smaller players, though, um, because what you're seeing is, again, more of the bigger players uh, taking so much of the action, you know, where some you know, more regulation would help some smaller players or new entrants. So 
I think those two things are different. Uh, although I, I, I would expect that higher taxes would hurt smaller tech in some way because you're probably going to see smaller investment. Um, you know, if your taxes are higher, you have to take on more risk, which you can expect from your, you know, your, your goals and your gains, you know, has to be larger. And, and a lot of investors don't want to take on that type of risk uh, after being taxed higher on it. So I think there's a dichotomy between those two, two things. Status quo is better for big, um, probably not as good for smaller. But if you go the other route, I think that hurts big tech. Certainly more regulation is going to hurt um, big tech. Uh, I think an increase in, in corporate taxes and individual taxes hurts big tech. Um, so you're seeing sort of two different places or two different pieces there depending on the size of tech. So let's sort of flip the scenario a little bit and talk about uh, what happens if Biden wins, but the Republicans keep the Senate and the Democrats sort of keep the House. That's a different kind of gridlock. And I'm sort of curious as to the gridlock that obviously existed during the Obama administration existed, right? No one, no one can pretend like it didn't exist. But in the last four years, it's taken on, and the last two years especially, it's taken on um, a different sort of tension and tone, for, for lack of a better phrase. Do you think that a change in the White House will alleviate some of that tension and tone so that the gridlock may not be quite as unbearable as what we've all been experiencing the past two to four years? I do, um, and, and that pains me to say. Um, but I, I think, you know, if you have Biden in the White House, I think that that cools some things down. Now, if you have Biden in the White House, but there's still a red Senate, there's still gridlock, you know, so sure. nothing accomplished, you know, and you could ramp up, you know, the tensions the way you saw it, you know, in Obama's, you know, term after 2010, um, and certainly in his last, you know, uh, full term, it could ramp back up. But I think just the presence of, of, of Biden in probably calmed some things down from, you know, from the start. But if the Senate's still Republican, nothing's going to get accomplished. It's still gridlocked by a different name. Uh, but I do think some things calm down a little bit. Sure. I'm just sort of wondering that if, you know, the Senate majority right now having, you know, sworn allegiance to a certain type of leader has sort of been, uh, with, with a few exceptions, you know, and I'm, and I'm not going to say that it's been, uh, everyone's been all in all the time, but without that sort of need for executive branch allegiance, do you think that some of the, that there might be more room for, you know, for real policy negotiation to take place because, you know, their, their fearless leader is no longer an obstacle to it? I think so, and I hope so, and and I I hope so for you know the American people really because they they should be back to the table. Um, they they should you know remove the philosophies to some extent and, and just look at what's in front of them, which nobody does at this point. Um, and, and listen, I think I think if it was the other way, there'd be allegiance you know on the Democratic side to their president. I mean, just the way those things go, and you know I think who who hurts in that scenario is the, is the American people. So you know what I'm saying is I, I hope that's the case. Um, I hope some people start to look at uh, what's brought in front of them and, and they start to legislate as they were elected to legislate, you know, not just, you know, allegiance to a party or allegiance to a, a president, because the fact of the matter is they, they represent their constituents and they should be legislating uh, on behalf of those uh, constituents and, and what they want, not necessarily what the party wants. So I hope for that. Um, I can't say I'm optimistic that's going to happen. I think that we are so stretched uh, politically at this point that that's not going to happen. Not in this aftermath, you know, maybe 2024, whatever happens, then it starts to thaw a little bit. But, you know, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of change come November 4th. 
So certainly in that scenario, if Biden wins, the Republicans keep the Senate and the Democrats keep the House, at a minimum, we know, especially since the Supreme Court's decision over the summer in seal of law, making uh, the director of the CFPB, you know, a, a position that serves at the leisure of the executive branch, I think we could 99.9% be sure that President Biden would appoint a new director there. And depending on who that director is, I think we'll have sort of it being the best funded. And right now, it seems like one of the most powerful regulators in the country will have a massive impact on financial services and technology, quite frankly, and specifically technology companies that serve the financial services industry. Um, but the signaling of you know a Biden win, I sort of think will signal that the voters are demanding change, right? Right. That's, that's the message that the voters want change and will, I think almost certainly lead to that increased oversight um, and regulation. Um, and not just, you know, the changing the director of the CFPB will be meaningful. Um, but then whatever that po the director then sets that policy, which will then, you know, trickle down for the next four years. And it, it is a very, it's a well-funded agency. And it's certainly one of the most politicized uh, ones, um, which was something, honestly, uh, when I, I was discussing this seal of law decision previously, which was one of the things that I think was sort of most upsetting to me that, you know, it was sort of confirmation that it was going to be a truly uh, politicized regulatory body as opposed to, you know, like the Federal Trade Commission and, you know, other other regulators that we've historically been working with. CFPB just turned 10, by the way. It's 10. Wow. It, yeah, it was formed in 2010. It's 2020. CFPB is 10 years old, just like my daughter. All right. So... We've talked about the divided government scenarios, right? Now let's talk about the unified government scenarios. And honestly, just even saying the phrase unified government like sort of makes me happy because like we haven't been able to say that in I don't know how how many years has it been? At least 12? We haven't 12 been years. More, yeah. maybe? 12 years, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about what in the unlike, and I agree with you, I think this is an unlikely scenario, but let's talk about what happens if we have if we're all red, if it's red across the board, what do you think that looks like, Gary? Yeah, highly unlikely. Um, let me put that on the table. While I love that, that's highly unlikely. I, I think what you'll see is more deregulation. I, I think you'll see maybe a, a second round of, of tax cuts. Uh, that is, you know, humanly possible. Um, and I think what that does, you know, as it pertains to the stock market, you know, you're going to get a, a pretty nice run, uh, I, I think, from the get-go. At some point, fundamentals have to catch up uh, to everything else, and, and, and maybe it cools off. But that, there's going to be an immediate boost, I think, from, from that perspective. I mean, corporations are going to be thrilled by that, particularly financial services, pharmaceuticals. I mean, they're going to be just overjoyed with, with the deregulation there. And uh, I think you're going to see a pretty big boost to, to earnings if you know, there's another tax cut. Clearly, uh, I think investors are going to pump that up because investors are going to see um, you know, more top line, more gains uh, from that perspective, and they'll be more willing to part with their money, particularly if they know that their capital gains taxes are going to stay low for some, you know, period of time. I think that that's, that's really what you're going to see there. I mean, it's going to be um, a lot of what you saw in the short aftermath of, of the election in 2016. Um, you're going to see a nice little run. But again, I think that's highly unlikely. I don't know that any, invest, any investors are really preparing for that. Uh, there's really no way to plan for it, not with the low likelihood. 
So um, I think that's probably the one that, you know, we, we probably uh, can scratch off first. All right. Moving, moving on then. Cause I don't really like talking about it hurt. Like, like it I, hurts, it, it, I, I know, but it, it hurts my heart. So, you know, Gary doesn't guys at listeners, Gary does not think it's a likely scenario. So we are going to no. move on <laughs> to, to, to what, uh, to what we would call a blue wave. Biden wins, Democrats take the Senate and the House. Um, and I know that for a lot of my listeners, uh, listening to the notion of a blue wave gives everyone a really big tummy ache slash migraine. And that is, uh, that's going to be a difficult pill to swallow for both, both the technology sectors and financial services. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, it's a it's frightening, I think, in a lot of ways, because what I just said, you're going to see a lot of the opposite. You're going to see more regulation. Uh, you'll probably see uh, taxes go back up, uh, and those things will have a, an immediate direct effect on you know those those industries specifically, financial services, tech for sure, um, and again, big tech more so. Um, that'll be a tough one. Um, you know, I also think that there's there's a little overreaction to that too. I think. The fear and the angst that some feel from a blue wave is probably a little tampered in reality. And that, again, a lot of these things are going to be tough to get through, uh, even still, um, you know, with, you know, control of all three. It's still tough to get some of these things through. But I also think that the market just the market reacts, you know, so some of that's probably baked in, as I mentioned before. I mean, you know, we, we tend to price things in, you know, a, a, a bunch earlier than people think we do uh, for one. You know, so a lot of that's going to be there. But here's the thing. I, I just I've got so much. I, I don't know, just respect for how markets react, so much respect for history uh, of the economies and markets, and, and we've always done well regardless. I mean, even in times where you would think, well, it's going to be a blue wave and all these things are going to affect markets, it's like markets just react. Um, they, they do. They may you know, become impaired for some period of time, and I think we're going to see that initially, but I just I feel good about you know, the overall strength uh, of the economy, the underlying you know just fundamentals of it, even given the pandemic. I mean, understanding, you know, what's happening in the, in the economy right now with the pandemic, I still think that over time, these things tend to uh, really balance themselves out. So I think there's a slight overreaction to blue wave, uh, even if it does happen. Well, that is one of the most optimistic statements that maybe I've ever heard you make on the topic, Gary. So we're, we've got a few, we've got a few minutes left and I have saved uh, my favorite topic for the last. And I gave you very little warning that I was going to do this. So I apologize in advance. Um, But so we've talked about election results. One of the things we haven't discussed yet is what the change in the composition of the United States Supreme Court is going to mean for all of this, regardless of election outcomes. And I shouldn't say 100% regardless because there's, there's a large contingency of people that fear that in the event of an entirely blue wave, we're just going to add justices and expand the court and, you know, sort of uh, situate that uh, the way the Democratic Party wants to. But putting, putting that aside for a minute, as you said, um, we lost sort of like a national treasure earlier this month uh, or last month, forgetting what day it is, and she needs to be replaced. And while there's much debate on whether or not she should be replaced before the election or there should not be an appointment before the election, that's not really what I want to get into because I don't have enough time to debate Mitch McConnell's general hypocrisy uh, on the world. But we have a candidate that's been promised, you know, a hearing uh, on the Senate floor. Whether or not she's going to be confirmed at this point, we don't know. Um, But we do know what side of the 
political spectrum she generally tends to lean on, although I think as, as a jurist, um, I'd like to believe the best and that she's not going to only let you know, uh, politics uh, dictate um, her jurisprudence. So let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, what do you think the court's comp- potential composition, what effect do you think that will have um, on the markets, separate and apart from what the election may hold for us? You know, I, I don't know that it has a, a, a large effect on the markets. Um, you know, let's you know, let's say that Amy Comey, Comey Barrett is actually um, confirmed, and, and you know that, that that goes to a six-three. I believe is that right, six-three? Yeah. Uh, again, people forget that the Supreme Court's job is not to make laws. I'd like to see the Supreme Court get back to that place. Um, unfortunately, they've been put in a bad. Um, spot because we've had, you know, a Congress and a Senate that can't get their act together uh, to do their job. And it's forced the Supreme Court to, to somewhat take up that role, which that is not the role of, 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 of the, the judicial branch. And it's actually frustrating that we've gotten there. Um, I also like a blue wave. I think that on this side, even if that is the case and it's 6-3, I think there's an overreaction to that as well. Um, I think that uh, for some reason, people assume that just because uh, a justice is conservative, you know, whether they're Textualists or not, and people assume that that's going to drive all their decision making, and that actually is just—it's just not—it's patently not true. In 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 a thousand cases, it's just not true. So I think there's an overreaction to that, but I can understand the fear, you know, of, of those that are uh, more liberal leaning, you know, seeing that you know those numbers go six to three, and and she seems to be you know fairly conservative, certainly personally. So I can understand the fear, um, but the reality is, like I said, they shouldn't be in a position to. to um, to, to be, you know, levying, you know, like you said, their jurisprudence, you know, based on how they think and how they feel personally. Um, I, I think there's an overreaction to that. I, I think that people should calm a little bit and understand what the Supreme Court's job is. And if, as long as they can get back to doing that job, um, I think we're all going to be okay. And we should trust that they're going to practice their juris- jurisprudence in a way that uh, they were confirmed and in, in, in place to do so. So I think there's an overreaction. Right? I, I'm, I'm not calming fears, but I think that some folks should look at that from its original intent, you know, rather than just another political body, you know, or political weapon, because that's not it's just just not their role. And and, and I'm hoping you know, that, that people will uh, continue to, um, to to conduct themselves in that manner. And I think you've seen that on a couple of the last, you know, large cases that have come really close, you know, and you've seen, you know, Roberts go, uh, you know, against uh, the conservative route. And I think that that's, you know, he's been beaten up a little bit by the right for that. But I, I mean, honestly, I would say, look, a 6-3 conservative bench is unquestionably overall going to benefit business. It, it, it will. Whether or not we, how we get into the nitty gritty of the way those cases come up and, you know, what that actually ends up looking like, who's, who's to say? But it, I don't think it's unfair to think that, yes, businesses will be benefited. I also think it might be unfair to say that, you know, um, all you know, social or traditionally liberal causes will be harmed. I think that's the over, I think that's sort of the overreaction to it. And honestly, I think Democrats uh, have generally been pleasantly surprised with even, you know, Justice Gorsuch, who was a Trump nominee. Um, You know, uh, Gorsuch and Roberts, the way they came out on DACA, like, I think they demonstrated that they, at least in that one scenario, that they were not going to be pure political puppets. And 
that's great. You know, as an attorney, I think that's great. I think that's how it ought to work. Um, and I do think that regardless, if we do see a change in the White House, I also think that we'll see some uh, calming effects uh, in SCOTUS as well. I think you're right there. And, and you said something I think is, is, is important that I, you know, I got to go back and highlight that um, a 6-3, you know, more conservative Supreme Court is, is, is better for business for sure. I mean, it is, and it is because, you know, the original, you know, intent of the constitution and, and, and how you look at those laws was to have a smaller government. A smaller government is typically better for, uh, for business. So yeah, I think that's certainly the case. Uh, do I think in any way that's a game changer? I don't know about that. I think our Supreme court, um, is, is again, even those that are more liberal, uh, are, are still fairly, um, or they're fair as it, as it comes to business related cases that come up. Um, it, you just kind of ensure that it's going to be that way with a six, three split. But again, I, I, I'm more in the camp of, we got to get back to a place where, uh, they're not forced to, you know, make laws. Um, no, I think that's and I, thing. you know, if there, if there is a blue wave, I don't know that it's necessarily the worst thing in the world to have, you know, a more conservative branch to, you know, that's what the checks and balances are about. We also want to make sure that there isn't overreaching legislation or, um, you know, things that are things that are ultimately unconstitutional as the CFPB's structure was ultimately found to be. So, uh, you know, my my Democratic friends are going to listen to this episode. They're going to be like, "Who are you?" Um, but you know, I, I think I think that's I, I like the notion of our checks and balances. I like how our democracy uh, was set up. I, I like the idea that you know, not one branch ever has uh, or one party ever has too many power, and everyone's holding everyone accountable all the time. And Here's hoping that, you know, 2021 brings us a year where we get back to doing that instead of just, you know, uh, throwing punches all day, every day and not doing anything to serve the needs of, you know, the citizens of the United States. Yeah, I feel like many people, you know, for whatever reason, they skip civics class and they forget that that's, you know, that's that's the way our branches are set up. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, what side you're on. You know, it's really set up for the protection of, of all of us, not just one party. So, um, you know, even though I, I'd love to see a red wave. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that's you know that's best for the country. Um, and the nice thing is, even when we get it wrong, um, you know we have a constitution that really protects us and you know allows the branches to do what they do. Um, we just want to make sure that we have people that occupy those seats that are doing their job um, responsibly. We, that's right. We've seen too little of that. Um, we've seen too little people coming to the table, and I think that's what I fear the most. So, um, but again, I, I am, and maybe I'm, I'm more optimistic than you wanted me to be, but uh, I tend to be a little more optimistic. Um, you know, Gary, all the Gary, scenarios you, you made, Gary, you made my morning. I, I want every, I want everyone to be optimistic. Um, there is so much negativity and stress happening all around us that we cannot control. We cannot control the fact that there is a global pandemic. We can argue about that. There's aspects of controlling the virus that we can control, but it got here, right? Like there's, there's so much that's out of our control. So rather than sit there and, and talk about how, how terrible everything is, I'm always an advocate of, all right, let's start with, let's start with glass half full until someone dumps out the glass. Right. And I just <laughs> have incredible faith in confidence in our markets. Uh, I just, I do I have incredible faith and history has shown, you know, that, that our mar our markets are just so strong and resilient, um, regardless of the four scenarios that we laid out. Um, it may react a certain way in the short term. We, we know we're going to see some volatility, but you know, overall growth, ex growth expansion and health, 
of, of our markets and economy over time is, is second to none. And, and that's why I just I, I still have a whole lot of confidence, even beyond, like you said, all of the tough things that we face day to day. Um, the one thing I know is that there's 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 not a country that's more resilient. There's not a market that's more resilient than ours. So I think regardless of the outcomes, uh, it'd be great to get people you know back to working together. It'd be great for our legislators to do their job. Um, and it'd be great to calm some of the you know the fears and the angst that uh, I think the, the the citizens face. So because um, by the way, if the legislators can all do that, I feel like we're all making a lot more money and we're all making, making a lot more, more progress. Everybody's making more money, um, which is great because you want people to live well, retire well. But anyway, like I said, we won't get into tax policy, but yes. No, uh, I mean, like not today, but like in the future, we can totally get into tax policy. Uh, we've sort of reached the end of our time. Gary, as always, it's great talking to you. Thank you for being here. And everyone, I will see you guys next time on the next episode of Tech on Reg. Thank you. <laughs>